Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. And I'm Damian Garde. Adam Forestine will be back next week. It's Thursday, August 26th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Now that the first COVID-19 vaccine is FDA approved, are more vaccination mandates on the way? Law professor Dorit Rice joins us to explain. Biotech is having a sloppy summer with allegations of data manipulation, botched clinical studies, and questionable transparency. We'll discuss. First, we'll start with the latest news from around the life sciences, but before that, a word from our sponsor. Hey, Maria, what you doing? Hey, Danielle. Just reviewing some hot-off-the-press pharmacokinetic data and thinking about our podcast. You? Oh, not much. Just watching some immune cells destroy cancer cells here on the scope. And of course, thinking about the podcast. Let's introduce it to everyone. Oh, sure. Well, I'm Maria, and my background is in transcription factors and diabetes, and now I lead molecule teams. And I'm Danielle. I'm just your simple welder mechanic who now deconstructs cancer cells. We are the new hosts for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, the award-winning science podcast from Genentech. Each show, we mix it up with biologists, neurologists, immunologists, all sorts of ologists about the very latest in science. So if you can't get enough of those ologists, grab a beverage and check us out wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Or find us at gene.com slash podcast. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash podcast. So in the absence of Adam Feuerstein, we need to squeeze in as much discussion of his least favorite topic as we can. And that is, of course, the (laughs) ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Meg, what's the latest with all of that? Yeah, it's been such a huge news week for the COVID vaccine. So Monday, the FDA gave full approval to the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, uh, which a lot of folks think may spur vaccine mandates. And of course, we're going to talk about that more with Dorit Rice, which is really exciting later in the episode. Um, And then on Wednesday, we got news from Johnson & Johnson on the booster front. They put out a press release um, with data from sort of an interim look at an early clinical trial where they gave a booster shot six months uh, after giving that first shot of their vaccine and said that it led to a rapid and robust increase in spike binding antibodies, ninefold higher than about a month after people got the first shot. Now, it's kind of interesting here. They they focused on spike binding antibodies because what normally we see in these vaccine press releases is the focus on neutralizing antibodies. And vaccine experts I spoke with said neutralizing antibodies are the ones you really care about because those are the ones that block the virus from being able to infect cells. But other folks I spoke with said it's likely that the neutralizing antibodies also rose. Not clear why that wasn't included in the press release. We're waiting to see the preprints posted on these preprint servers, the the actual studies to get more information. But essentially the context of this is when U.S. health officials said that all Americans are going to need booster doses eight months after their original series, they were just talking about Pfizer and Moderna. And at this point, said they didn't have enough data to make recommendations about J&J, which is all kind of funny because the J&J vaccine is the one that all these doctors have been saying needs a booster dose with Pfizer or Moderna. Um, And so the CDC actually tweeted this week that there's not enough data to support giving an mRNA booster to J&J. And then J&J coming out with this, essentially saying, hey, if you're going to boost, boost with ours. And here's the first of the data you need for that. There's a lot more that we need to see. 
uh, safety. We need to see efficacy against Delta. Um, so all of those things. But this was kind of that first four into it. Um, and then we also heard from Moderna this week that they finalized their FDA full approval uh, application package. So we'll see how long it takes the FDA to go through that. And then Pfizer and BioNTech said they have started submitting their application for a supplemental biologics uh, license. So essentially full approval for a booster dose. And they said they'll uh, finish getting that application in this week. And so we're really starting to barrel towards fall in this talk of booster shots. And next week, the CDC um, advisory committee is going to meet to talk about boosters and also uh, you know, vote on the full of fully approved Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which seems kind of uh, ceremonial. Like, well, I, I'm kind of <laughs> interested to see, like, they've devoted like several hours to this. So I'm interested to see what they talk about. But um, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, I'm curious as to like the J&J the &J of it all, because as we've talked about, <laughs> the J&J the &J vaccine has accounts for really a small percentage of the COVID-19 vaccine administrations in this country. I think it was only about 14 million people. Uh, last I looked at the CDC website. And so I wonder if, you know, a combination of booster data, if indeed um, it's promising, but also there's a trial that I think is a little bit under the radar that Johnson & Johnson has been running for some time, which is a phase three study in which they give their uh, one dose vaccine twice, two months right. apart, um, and, and compare that with placebo. <laughs> one might and call I that a two dose vaccine. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it'll be interesting to see because, you know, one, we'll be comparing the efficacy of that versus other studies that we've seen. But also, I think because of when that trial was run, it will likely reflect more of the Delta variant than we've mm -hmm. seen from other large clinical studies. So there's kind of ostensibly a comeback narrative uh, for the third place finisher in J&J &J in that if that study is resoundingly positive and its booster is approved, we might see the rates of use of the J&J &J vaccine. Maybe they can make up some ground on the mRNA ones, that is. Oh, it's really interesting. And just to button up that whole comeback narrative idea, one of the interesting things about J&J &J that I think has kind of gone under the radar a little bit is that they say out to eight months, their immune response stays stable. Whereas you see the antibodies start to wane at that point for Pfizer and Moderna. So you almost wonder, does J&J &J start to look better over time? And the problem is we're just not giving these things time to really figure that out because we're in a pandemic and everybody needs to be protected to the highest extent possible. Um, but you know, the the race isn't called at this point, I think, between, you know, what's the best vaccine? And, and of course, experts would say it's different for everybody. So beyond the, the COVID front, one of the other things we, of course, love to talk about on this podcast is movies. So Damien, you watched Sweet Girl. Tell me what you thought. I did. So uh, for people who may not remember, Sweet Girl is a, a major motion picture starring Jason Momoa available on Netflix. Um, where the crux of the plot is a greedy pharmaceutical company um, paying to delay the uh, availability of a generic cancer medicine that they make the branded version of. You know, quality is in the eye of the beholder, so I don't want to <laughs> be too heavy-handed. What I would say uh, that struck me about Sweet Girl is that the movie has an admirably pretty accurate description of pay for delay a, a real life phenomenon um there are a few there's some expository dialogue uh mostly from a vice reporter um <laughs> that kind of describes that process however everything that unfolds from there i mean it's basically the plot of the film the fugitive essentially um but if you imagine the fugitive in which everyone involved is recovering from like a serious head injury with respect to both uh, the quality of the writing, the plot, 
and, and in some of the acting. Um, now that being said, I, I, can't, I I'm curious actually, and, and I, I should have kind of dug into this, but I don't have an IMDb Pro account as to who or how many people. Something every biotech journalist requires. Right, exactly. I'll be expensing that by the end of this month. But I wonder who the consultants were, if, if it's plural, mm. um, who who kind of laid out some of the um, complexities of of this whole thing. The one complaint I have, other than related to the quality of the film, is that you know in in a lot of movies they'll use made up media outlets when there needs to be a media outlet. But in this case, they use real ones. Like I mentioned, a vice reporter is involved. There's a a shot of this sort of classic uh, tack board with like printouts and and red string as our, our hero is putting things together. And the printouts are, you know, clippings from stories about this evil pharmaceutical company from Vanity Fair, from Forbes, etc. There's a point where he's looking at news on his phone and there's a patch.com link. My point is, no not a single, stories? not a single stat story, not a single CNBC story, and I just feel like in this fictional world, if this kind of Martin Shkreli esque CEO were real, that we would have, we would have covered it. You know, you would so. have written the expose. I have <laughs> every confidence in that. One thing I think really is sort of interesting about this, and, and we need to find these consultants. They are going to be guests on the show next week. Is is how they decided like pay for delay was like the ultimate pharma evil thing to do like is that the thing that makes the like the pharmaceutical industry most villainous you know in the eyes of of the public or do they do other things is it drug price i'm just surprised it's not even like a you know really expensive drug or or something like that because that just seems so much more accessible that's true and i don't want to spoil it but i will say that the company well this thing goes straight to the top let's say uh once the uh the plot begins to unravel but it is interesting that yeah they zoom in on pay for delay and it's it's described by all of the characters as this like shocking scandalous thing and you know as we know in many cases it's it's legal sometimes the ftc gets involved but in a lot of cases these are settlements that just happen well if any of our listeners watch the movie and want to report back we would love to hear what you think On Monday of this week, the FDA gave full approval to Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine for people 16 and older. President Biden gave a speech that afternoon telling people who'd been waiting for the FDA's official and final sign-off that this was the moment they'd been waiting for. But he also had a message for another group, employers. As I mentioned before, I've imposed vaccination requirements that will reach millions of Americans. Today, I'm calling on more country more companies, I should say, in the private sector to step up with vaccine requirements that will reach millions more people. If you're a business leader, a nonprofit leader, a state or local leader who has been waiting for full FDA approval to require vaccinations, I call on you now to do that. Require it. So will full FDA approval mean we're about to see the dominoes start to fall on employer vaccine mandates? To help us sort through all of this is Dorit Rice, a professor of law at the UC Hastings College of Law, whose research focuses on legal and policy issues related to vaccines. Dorit, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you for having me. So I guess, you know, I'm basically putting the same question I just phrased rhetorically to you. Does full approval change the legal picture for employers who might want to mandate COVID-19 vaccinations for their employees? Yes, full approval changes the legal picture because most of the lawsuits challenging COVID-19 vaccine mandates so far have focused on the EUA status. That was an area of legal uncertainty, and it still is. There's a question, can you mandate the EUA vaccine? We have some indications that, yes, you can. We have one court decision supporting it, and 
and recent memo from the Office of Legal Counsel, the president's advisor, but there, but there's no definitive legal answer to that. So licensing means you can no longer challenge the vaccine claiming it's an EUA vaccine, though anti-vaccine sources are already pivoting to try and keep that alive. And that was the main argument against vaccine mandates. So do you think that now that one of these vaccines is fully FDA approved, we will start to see more employers being comfortable instituting vaccine requirements? I expect we will see a lot more employers uh, now comfortable mandating the vaccines. As long as there is one licensed option, the employee is not being required to take an EUA vaccine. They can choose to take the licensed vaccine and therefore we're going back to the traditional uh, situation, which is workplace mandates are perfectly legal as long as you follow the exemptions. And if you have a union, you may have to negotiate with them. So sort of another way of, of trying to get employees vaccinated. This week, we saw Delta Airlines, um, you know, victim of an unfortunate branding coincidence in 2021. They said they would levy a $200 health insurance premium surcharge on any employees who were unvaccinated, citing a $50,000 cost of each hospitalization from COVID-19. What are the legal issues to consider around ideas like this? So there's two really important legal issues. The first is that federal law limits uh, to what degree a health insurance uh, provider can treat people different differently. Uh, the Affordable Care Act only allows you to treat different groups within the same plan differently if it's a wellness program. Insurers can, when they negotiate with employers, can charge different premiums to different employers. But within that employers, uh, there are limits to how far you can differentiate between workers. And it's not actually clear whether the Delta change uh, is within the guidelines. I expect there'll be a legal challenge to that. And what exactly is a wellness program? I mean, what would be within those bounds and what would be outside of the bounds of a wellness program for health insurance? A wellness program is a program designed to increase uh, health, a smoking cessation program and so forth. And you can give um, incentives within a wellness program. So vaccination can be seen as a wellness program, but even within that, uh, you need to meet certain guidelines. For example, the penalties has to be within a certain amount. Uh, they can't go over uh, 30% of the cost of to the employee of the coverage. Uh, so there, there are real limits and they have to be directed at changing behavior. And it's not clear that this additional surcharge really will change behavior. So another thing along those lines that we're seeing here in New York and elsewhere is the requirement of proof of vaccination or vaccine passports to get into certain businesses like restaurants, bars and gyms. What are the legal considerations to to think about as that moves forward? First of all, we've seen vaccine passports in other countries as well. Israel used one and as did Europe. Um, And we know that they lead to higher vaccination rates. When it comes from the private business, there's no problem. Private business can set conditions for entry as long as they, uh, if they're a business that falls under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, such as a restaurant, as long as they don't step on protected categories such as race. Vaccine status is not a protected category. So private businesses can set that requirement. When it comes from the government, it's trickier because the government has to meet constitutional requirements as well. In this case, 
there's probably not an in, uh, an equal protection issue because a, a vaccine mandate again doesn't uh, step on a protected category. This isn't race. This isn't religion. And it's also not treating like people alike. So it's discrimination when you treat people uh, differently based on a irrelevant characteristic. But vaccinated people are not similar to unvaccinated. They're at higher risk of getting and transmitting COVID-19. So uh, treating them differently is more like treating jaywalkers differently than people who walk on the sidewalk or drunk drivers differently than others. So it's probably not an equal protection program problem, but you still have to show if you're challenged that this is a reasonable interference in liberty. Historically, courts have been pretty differential to public health authorities when they limit individual liberty in the public health, but the bigger the intervention, uh, the more legal risk you're taking. This will probably be challenged and it will be interesting to see how courts go. There's something about the legal profession. You guys have the best analogies. I just feel like you compare things in such interesting ways. And maybe it's something about how you have to argue things to get people to frame how they think about things, but it's just it's so helpful. So another category we wanted to ask you about is schools. We've been hearing from a lot of universities, of course, and there was even that court case about a university vaccine mandate. But you actually tweeted about a single example, I think we've seen, of a high school uh, requiring vaccines. And of course, kids um, 12 and older are eligible. Why do you think we're not seeing more, more high schools, middle schools mandating vaccines for students right now? Historically, school vaccine mandates are a state creation. So uh, in most states, there's a very elaborate scheme for school immunizations, and it's either governed by the legislator that can add uh, or remove uh, vaccines or by the health department. Basically, this is an area where the state has been very active. So districts going alone and taking a risk, they will face challenges saying that this is preempted by the state. The state already did this and the state is the higher legal authority. Uh, I think most districts are going to wait on this, on their respective states to act on this. And if you ask me why more states are not moving there, my bet is uh, states have two things in mind. First, imp uh, imposing a vaccine mandate is a fight usually. And doing it now when it's only authorized for 12 means you're going to have to do it again when it's five and up. And two, uh, I think states may still be nervous about having that fight for a vaccine that's still under an emergency use authorization because of the legal uncertainty and because they uh, may be waiting for more data. Obviously, that's a guess. The last part is the states that are most suffering, where children are most hospitalized, are states where the political environment is probably not friendly to COVID-19 vaccine mandate. There are certain people that I've spoken with um, who believe we really don't... Um get out of this or at least get out of this quickly without broad mandates for everybody for these vaccines. Uh, this may not be a legal question, but just from your perspective studying this, what do you think the future holds in terms of getting more people to get vaccinated and, and if, if we can? I think unless a really bad new variant emerges, which unfortunately is an option, we will get out of COVID-19. And the question is, at what price? The argument for mandates is mandates will get us out quicker. And I think that's true. I, I'm, I was going to say nobody likes mandates, but that's probably too broad. 
I don't like having to go to mandate, but I think where we are right now, it's the least worst option. Broad mandates now would reduce the level of deaths and harms we're seeing from COVID-19 and would save lives and end this sooner. And that's good for everybody. Dorit, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Outside all of the COVID topics that we're constantly talking about, biotech, of course, is doing a lot of other things. And this summer um, has apparently held some disappointments for the industry and some setbacks and some kind of weird situations. Damien, you've been following a lot of these. Walk us through what's been happening uh, with biotech. Yeah, it feels like it's just been kind of a messy few months, especially for the sort of small or mid-cap biotech companies that might have one or two drugs in development on which their entire existence depends. There's been allegations of falsifying data, clinical trial misconduct, and just generally a lack of transparency. So I think what really solidified this for me uh, came this week. There's a company called Cassava Sciences, which, uh, at least in Wall Street terms, had been really one of the success stories of 2021. The company's stock price had risen something like 16-fold based upon excitement, whether misguided or not, about an investigational Alzheimer's disease treatment that the company was developing. Um, But that all changed in recent days. So a a law firm filed a petition to the FDA, um, basically claiming that Cassava had manipulated data, falsified multiple analyses um, in published documents, and drew conclusions that, quote, are contrary to a basic understanding of neurobiology, end quote, uh, in the documents that supported this notion that this Alzheimer's disease drug might work. So once Wall Street saw uh, these, these pretty Um, incendiary claims. The stock price fell by more than 30%, cutting about a billion dollars from its market value. Cassava put out a response on Wednesday that disputed some of the allegations, but uh, the the logic was a little circular. Um, I found it a little bit befuddling. And then uh, no less an authority than Elizabeth Bick, who, you know, people may know has become um, a really well-regarded kind of sleuth for falsified data, specifically image manipulations in, in academic papers. She jumped in and took a look and agreed that Cassava's data looked pretty fishy. And so this is kind of an on- ongoing story. We don't know um, how this is going to to play out. The, uh, the law firm that filed this petition is asking the FDA to place ongoing studies of this drug on clinical hold until the company explains the many allegations levied against it. And yeah, it's kind of a moving target. And as you pointed out, I mean, this is just the latest of a lot of these kind of weird little things happening with biotech. You say, is this kind of similar to another company, Athera Pharma? Yeah, they had a, a very similar issue uh, just earlier this summer. And, and Stats Olivia Goldhill uh, had a story that basically um, Athera Pharma ended up putting its CEO and co-founder on leave pending an investigation into alleged scientific misconduct um, that she had conducted as a graduate student. The reason it's pertinent to the company is that the published works in question related to the underlying theory um, of the company's lead drug, which happens to also be a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And then similarly, as we, we spoke about last week, there's a company called Sesson Bio, whose treatment for bladder cancer was rejected by the FDA. And then we published a story a few days after that rejection based on documents that we obtained showing that the clinical trial that Sesson ran to win that FDA approval was 
messy is a word I feel like I keep using, but it was frankly messy, for lack of a better term, marked by protocol violations, by investigator misconduct, and by some serious safety issues that the company didn't disclose at the time in its filings uh, to the SEC. You know, it just so on and so on and so on. The same, a similar thing happened with a company called Axone Therapeutics, which appeared to be on a path for FDA approval for a treatment for depression and then got a, quote, deficiency letter from the FDA, which is pretty serious business that has delayed the FDA approval, um, I guess, indefinitely, as best we know right now, which underlines, you know, something we've talked about many times, the fundamental frustration in biotech, especially when it comes to the FDA, that because the agency obeys its you know internal policy not to comment on drugs that are under review you can rely only on the companies themselves and time and again we have seen that sometimes the company's description of its interactions with the fda don't match up with what the fda turned out to have been saying all along yeah the the not making crls complete response letters or, or any of the interactions between companies and the FDA public. It just leads to all kinds of problems and really seems like a, a ripe area for some kind of change that it would just bring everything more above board and increase transparency. I mean, there's been such a focus on that with the COVID vaccine process and so many people lauding the FDA for having these meetings with their outside advisors, their webcasts. We could all watch it on YouTube for eight hours. Uh, would people do that for these other things? Well, yeah, the biotech industry definitely would um, and certainly would read all kinds of minutes it's about conversations between the FDA and the companies. I'm interested, Damien, not all of those companies you talked about just now are in the same therapeutic area, but the first two are. They're in Alzheimer's. And I just wonder how much do you think this situation is brought has been brought about by the frenzy that was kicked off with the FDA granting accelerated approval to aducanumab? I mean, did that just sort of I mean, did it blast these biotech valuations of companies working in Alzheimer's just out of the water and then lead to short seller interest? I mean, if, if shady stuff is going on, shady stuff is going on for longer than this drug has been on the market. But I just wonder what role you think that might play in all of this. Uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely integral to to both the rise and what appears to be the ongoing fall of at least Cassava. I think, you know, the, the increase in the stock price of that company was definitely tied to the approval of Adjuhelm, which was uh, kind of counterintuitive, if not nonsensical at the time, because as we know, Adjuhelm was approved based on its uh, effect on amyloid and the cassava drug. We don't need to get into the science of it, um, but is not an amyloid drug. So even if you were looking at that as precedent that the FDA would approve new Alzheimer's treatments that seemed a little misguided, that's neither here nor there. But then likewise, that rise in in valuation led to more scrutiny, and you know I don't know the details of this uh, these allegations or how they came about or even who authored them, um, but it seems like a reasonable inference to say that people only felt the need to dig in because they saw this 16-fold increase in stock price of this Austin, Texas company no one had ever heard of before. So yeah, it does seem like not necessarily a bubble inflating and bursting, but just sort of like a market phenomenon of exuberance followed by hangover, perhaps. So it hasn't all been, uh, quote unquote, messy, uh, your favorite word for this segment <laughs> this summer. One thing that really excited biotech investors this week was Pfizer's acquisition of Trillium. Tell us about that. Yeah, it seemed to kind of come out of nowhere. And it is the kind of deal that I think people who invest in biotech stocks sort of dream of. Uh, Trillium had had an up and down quest to develop new treatments for cancer. Um, they were a penny stock as recently as about two years ago, I think. And then Pfizer came in with a $2.3 billion deal, which was a three times premium over Trillium's recent 
trading price. And that kind of thing, the like deus ex machina of a big pharma takeout, which is the sort of stuff that really, um, you know, magically thinking oriented Twitter users talk about all day with their favorite stocks. It does happen sometimes. And Trillium was a sign, um, you know, that it can. And I think that was... Um, massive for sentiment. So the, the, the XBI, a biotech index that's closely watched, was down as much as 20% this year. And it's still down 8% for this year, but it's up 9% um, since that Trillium deal went through. So there, there's definitely a sense that <laughs> despite all the messiness, despite the fact that it remains an incredibly risky industry just on the biology, let alone the can you trust these management teams angle, there is still money to be made in biotech. Things like this do still happen. I'm not sure there's a better way of describing what can happen in the biotech industry than deus ex machina. <laughs> that is just, to talk about the the analogies again, going back to our conversation with Dorit, that's a good one. Is that an analogy? Um, well, it's a, it's a pretentious. I don't know. I don't, it, it's something. <laughs> it's very Damien. <laughs> That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you know who the sweet girl consultant was. <laughs> you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. Uh, if people didn't know what the movie name was, that's a really strange phrase. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week.